Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Before I begin, I have a big announcement, okay? This announcement, uh, I've sort of alluded to it in past episodes, but I'm launching a new podcast. Wealth Formula is not going anywhere. Don't worry. But you see, I have other interests as well. And I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on things like reading about longevity medicine and things like that. And I've been doing that kind of thing for a while. And it occurred to me that I, I think I should share it with you. So rather than just, you know, read and get interested in all this stuff by myself, I am launching a new podcast and it's called Sapio. Uh, that's S-A-P-I-O with Buck Joffrey. That podcast, when you listen to this podcast, should be live. So please, please make sure you check it out, download it. Um, it'll be on wherever you you normally find your podcast. That's where you're going to find it. If you find us on YouTube, it will be on YouTube. You find us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever. But check it out because I think this is a... Uh, this is the type of podcast, you know, I think you're really going really gonna to enjoy um, because, of course, you know, at the end of the day, we're, you know, in this podcast with Wealth Formula, we're interested in, you know, how to make money and create freedom and things like that. But there's another part to life, which is about living a long, healthy life, trying to, you know, learn new things and try to optimize, um, optimize the time that we have on earth. And that's what SAPU is about. So there is a lot of, um, you know, it's sort of a hand in hand uh, type thing with wealth formula for me. And uh, I would love for you to listen to it. The first several episodes are on what we're calling the uh, pillars of longevity. And there's some crazy, really good stuff that you've probably never heard about uh, when it comes to longevity science and the potential for, you know, living an awful long time, more than you could have, much longer than you would imagine uh, today, uh, and live it as if you're much younger uh, than than you actually are. So check that out. Uh, again, Sapio with Buck Joffrey, available widely. Now today, uh, I am going to, on Wealth Formula, talk a little bit, um, you know, a little bit about this craziness uh, in this troubled economy that we're having and that kind of thing. And it brings me back to, you know, my own medical days because, uh, of course, as you probably know, uh, part of why I'm interested in all this longevity and stuff is because I'm a physician. I started out as a neurosurgery resident 
moved over to otolaryngology, head and neck surgery. That's a mouthful, I know. And then did some uh, uh, facial plastics and cosmetics uh, surgery training as well. And so, uh, you know, during my training, it didn't really matter how much I worked. Uh, I would always get paid the same paycheck, right? Now, I wasn't lazy, but I certainly didn't enjoy working for what amounted to minimum wage. And so I wasn't about to volunteer for extra call or do anything like that. I mean, I was already overworked and, um, you know, not super motivated to go try to work uh, a lot more than I already was. But eventually I did finish training and I was hired, uh, oddly enough, you know, uh, by a facelift company. It was a, a high volume uh, company that would recruit patients with, uh, well, I would say maybe some questionable marketing tactics. Uh, and they would hire an army of young surgeons, you know, good surgeons uh, from good residency programs and get them into the program and, and put them to work. Right. And so for the surgeons like me, it was like a great opportunity was you get tons of experience and, you know, you get you get paid a lot more than you did in residency. You know, I got paid. So I got paid about what it ended up being about 15 percent on revenue that I generated for the company. Um, now, they didn't charge as much as a typical, you know, Beverly Hills facelift surgeon or something like that. But I was doing three to four facelifts a day and 15%. Well, it turned out to be really, really good money. I mean, for me, at least at that time, for reference, my most recent job before that, I was making about $50,000 per year in the city of San Francisco, which puts you right around the poverty line. So anyway, I remember, uh, I remember the day I became a capitalist, okay? And it was the day I got my first what I would call my real paycheck it was you know my big boy paycheck um, and in that two weeks I made more money of course there was a bunch of tax and stuff too but like grossly I made more money than my entire surgical internship year and that completely blew my mind and suddenly I realized that the harder I worked the more money I could make and that actually conceptually uh, was brand new for me. That was brand new because I'd always been on sort of a salary, a slave salary as a resident and that kind of thing. So I really, this this concept was, just blew my mind. And that made me work really hard. And suddenly I was more than happy to put in the long hours, uh, come in on the weekends. I enjoyed doing procedures too and I was good at it, but I liked the idea that the more I worked, the more money I made. And it was making me super duper happy. And, um, you know, not only like, and I'm, when I mean happy, I really do mean happy too. Like it was a noticeable change in my spirit. Even though I didn't own the the, the business itself, I, I really cared about it. You know, I wanted to make sure we did a good job. We had a good reputation, uh, you know, and in, in a sense, I took ownership, even though I didn't own the place. And that's important because after all, you know, in the history of the world, no one ever took a rental car to the car wash, right? So anyway, of course, like all entrepreneurs, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, eventually realizing that there was an even better way to make money than getting paid uh, for the amount of work that uh, you do. And that is to own your own business. And I wanted to start on multiple uh, start start multiple businesses and the rest is of course history but the moral of the story is that the opportunity for those of us who have talent and who work hard is endless in our country and getting paid for the first time gave me 
my first taste of that. Uh, and anything, in my opinion, that threatens that reward system of hard work uh, and, and being rewarded for that uh, threatens the very core spirit of who we are in this country. I really, really believe that. And of course, not everyone shares my views, especially these days. Um, and it's not always as simple as perhaps I make it sound, right? And we still need to take care of people uh, in need. We still need to provide opportunity for the underprivileged so we don't leave them behind. Um, and this became even more evident during COVID when people simply couldn't work. But I, I fear uh, some of the remedies of a difficult time have permanently altered our culture. After all, it is difficult to take things away from people after you, you give it to them. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that, that you just go into this um, cycle, basically, uh, where it becomes more and more, uh, the government becomes more and more uh, sort of socialist every day, right? Now, my guest on uh, Wealth Formula podcast today was right in the middle of the policymaking decisions that, uh, that were made during COVID and especially those that affected uh, people like us, you know, when it came to rent forbearance and how to treat landlords and all that kind of thing. And what makes his perspective interesting is that he is a libertarian guy who works for a libertarian uh, think tank, the Cato Institute. So when we come back, find out how a small government guy navigated the biggest government intervention in American history and also find out what he thinks of today on today's economy and various policies that are coming through the Biden administration. We'll have all that right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Mark Calabria. Mark is a senior advisor to the Cato Institute and a co-founder of the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He provides strategic input and direction on the federal economic policymaking process. He's also a former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which regulates and supervises Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Federal Home Loan Banks. He is the author of Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Now, Buck, it's great to be here. So, um, you know, your your background is uh, is interesting. And, and for those people who don't know, tell us a little bit about the Cato Institute. So the Cato Institute is a think tank. Uh, and again, you can, you can 
kind of think about think tanks as uh, academics who don't teach and generally share a, a point on the political spectrum a broad point of view. So uh, Cato, founded in 1977 in the Bay Area of San Francisco, moved in the early 80s uh, to Washington, D.C. He's generally considered you know, libertarian-ish, so mm-hmm. there are issues in where we agree with the left, there are issues we agree on the right, uh, and we tend to be very nonpartisan about it and, and tend to you know really call out uh, things we disagree with and, and call out things we agree with. Um, but again, we work in a broad set of policy issues. I'm in more the economic space, but we at Cato do work on immigration, criminal justice. I mean, pretty much, you know, healthcare reform, everything under the sun that has a policy angle. And uh, should say we are, we don't take any government money. We are 100% supported uh, by kind contributions from people who want to who share our philosophy and want to see us uh, change the world. That's great. And, and, um, you know, obviously from your perspective, your, your focus is, uh, a lot of it has been on mortgages and things like, you know, financial markets that way. Um, I'm curious, there was some recent, um, there's a recent article, uh, that I saw in the wall street journal regarding this concept of upside down mortgage policies, uh, you want to, I mean, this, I think this is going to be kind of a surprise to sure. people. Like, do you want to tell, tell us what this is? Cause this is like a new, essentially a new law, right? It's not something that's being discussed. It's real. Well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a new pricing. So, uh, and as you touched upon, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my professional career in the financial services space, particularly mortgage, you know, what was the primary regulator for the mortgage market during COVID and, since about the 1980s, you know, pre-1980s, it was really the case that everybody kind of paid the same for a mortgage. But if you were a higher risk, you didn't really get a mortgage or you went to, you got it from a hard money lender or you got it from, from the seller. Like, you know, the typical going to a bank, again, if you were a marginal credit, you simply didn't get a loan then. So starting about the 80s, you know, we had the development of risk-based pricing largely because of the creation of the credit rating agencies and other things. And so you developed over time a system where if you had a, if you were a lower risk, that is like you had a higher FICO or you were able to put a lower down, you know, bigger down payment down, you know, you paid a lower rate. And again, yeah. over time that really started to reflect um, tightly. And again, the flip side of that, of course, is if you're high risk and you have a, a low FICO and you're putting very little down, um, you tended to pay a higher rate. And, and again, we've seen the financial markets kind of gravitate in that way. And of course, it's not just mortgages. That's, that's true in auto, credit card, other lines of credit as well. By the way, that makes a lot of sense, right? Basically, does, from the does. lending side, you're de-risking, uh, you know, you're de-risking the, uh, the opportunity for the, the lender here. And, and you should be paying less if you're providing them less risk. So that, that makes sense. I, hundred percent. I would also argue from the borrower side. I mean, I I understand that nobody likes to have to pay a higher rate, but first of all, price does convey information. And if you are going for a loan of some sort and it's a high rate, that's information about perhaps your own financial situation. Right. In many instances, you can six, 12 months make considerable progress on your credit history if you work on fixing it. So to me, a, you know, if the market's charging you a high rate to borrow, that's the, the market's telling you something. Perhaps you should listen. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. one factor. And the other factor is 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, before the risk-based advent of risk-based pricing, higher risk borrowers simply just didn't get mortgages. And so it's increased access. Right. So we can debate whether paying a higher rate and getting a mortgage is better than not being able to get a mortgage at any rate. Personally, I think it is, um, but it's increased access. So I, I think it's a win-win. Now, what the uh, Biden administration has proposed doing is using their control of Fannie and Freddie to kind of flatten that relationship between uh, what you pay and the risk. Now, there still be a connection between if you're better risk, you'll get a better rate, but they're really trying to flatten that to create more of a cross-subsidy. So they are trying to essentially make you the better borrower pay more to somewhat subsidize the lower borrower. But I, I do want to be very clear um, this is this in no way suggests you should stop paying your bills and ruin your credit because you think you'll get a better mortgage rate. You won't. So you should still work at your credit and do those things. But it is very much geared to be, um, uh, you know, cross subsidy within the system. Only applies in the Fannie and Freddie space. So, so to be clear, though, market. Mark, yeah. to be clear, you're saying that if you have so so the stratification here is based on purely on a credit score. Yes. And, and again, you know, it's important to remember part of the argument from the Biden administration that this is meant to help low income folks. But let's make two observations important. First of all, it's only the Fannie Freddie space. So if you're in the jumbo, if you you know, if you're truly rich, this isn't affecting you because you're not in the Fannie and Freddie space. And then it may surprise some folks, but I think you probably know this well, Buck. Uh, while the uh, relationship between income, a person's income and credit is positive, it's actually quite weak. There are a lot of well-off people who don't pay their bills on a timely basis, and there are lots of poor people who actually do pay their bills on a timely basis. So even if you, as a social policy, feel like, well, you know, let's do something to help the less off, this isn't what it is. It actually, and again, most most of uh, poor households are likely to be renters. This is really, in a sense, a cross-subsidy within the middle class between those who have better credit and have taken years to build that uh, and those who have weaker credit. I should also note one of the biggest connections between your credit is your age. And, you know, it's not, uh, you know, fair to say when many of us were in our 20s, perhaps we weren't as responsible as we were later in life. And, uh, you know, it often takes years to build up a good credit score. So this is, in a sense, a, a subsidy from those in their 40s and 50s to those in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, and you know it's the credit thing is a, is is really interesting to me in general because I mean after a certain point too it becomes a lot less important. Like I know in my case, my credit is not perfect at all, and I don't know exactly why. Uh, you know, like I'm you know maybe just a little bit over seven hundred or something like that. So when I was buying, you know, I was getting a few mortgages around here, and I have a lot of uh, real estate debt, tons of real estate, right. like you know. Uh, and, and I sus suspect that's part of what it is. But when I went to a private bank that I, that I get my mortgage from, they didn't really even care what my credit report said. That was not part of their, <laughs> you know, that was, you, you really raise a great, you, you raise a great point, which right. is that credit scores are important, but they are not the end all be all. Right. Um, a lot of, and, and again, perhaps the biggest takeaway from this change is, for better credit borrowers, there's going to be a bigger difference in rates. So this only affects Fannie and Freddie right, borrowers. Right. Uh, a lot of higher income, but not necessarily rich borrowers. You know, the bank wants that loan. So if, if you're getting a mortgage for, say, seven, eight $800,000, often the bank will want, it, want that relationship. 
and they'll want to keep that loan on their books and they'll give you a better deal than if it was sold to Fannie and Freddie. So the first, the most important takeaway for, for folks is that this makes it all the more important to shop for rates because it'll be bigger diversion. And again, if the bank has a bigger distribution, if the bank has an existing relationship with you, they, they try to take that holistically. So in your case, if you've got all these other deals with the bank, I'd rather you've got loans and you're doing business and they want to keep the relationship, they might look at it and say, well, you know, okay, the, the overall relationship is important. It's also obviously important to keep in mind that, you know, the bigger down payment. So before there was a real growth in Fannie and Freddie subprime, if you go back to kind of what subprime looked at, looked like in the 1990s, you know, if you had a 660, 680 FICO, you would get a, you know, you would get a, a loan and they would require you to have like 30, 40% down. So there are other offsets there uh, that can factor into it. So yeah, your credit's important. It's good to have good credit. Um, it tends to be more buckets, if you will. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't strive to have that 850, but if you've got 780, 800, it's, it's fairly similar. There may be some differences in some loan products. Um, but again, a lot of other factors, uh, but it's, it, it's a smart thing to do to try to get, to try to keep the best credit you can. I wouldn't necessarily worry about it on a month to month basis, but if you are applying for a rate, having prime credit is extremely helpful. So let's go to a different topic. Uh, you were at once a federal housing finance agency director. When you were, how did you determine that rent forbearance was the right policy during the pandemic? Um, and I guess the follow-up on that is, are you satisfied with, you know, what was achieved from that? Well, it's one of the reasons to write the book is I felt very strongly about trying to tell the story of, of not only where I thought we were successful, but where we were constrained and perhaps in some areas fell short. And I should clarify, you know, later in the summer of 2020 was when the CDC invoked their eviction moratorium. We didn't have anything to do with that. Um, in March of 2020, you know, we initially saw that only about, and again, remember, from about February to, to May, we lost uh, 22 million jobs. <laughs> so shockingly quick and deep job loss. But the thing that we immediately saw in our data was only about 40% of those people using their losing their jobs had mortgages. Uh, and of course, this is not surprising. We all remember bars, restaurants, and other things. So we saw immediately that renters were being most impacted. Uh, so because we didn't have a way to mandate it, what we essentially set up was a system where the landlord, because again, keep in mind, I'm running Fannie and Freddie. I have information on the mortgage. I have information on who holds the mortgage. We don't even know whether the unit's occupied, to be, to be frank. All we know is this is a rental unit with a mortgage on it. And so we set up a system where the landlord could agree to not evict for non-payment. Of course, they could evict for nuisance and all the other legitimate things that beside that. And then we would give them a pause uh, on their mortgage. Now, the reasons why I say there's some limitations to this, I mean, between us and FHA, which is also obviously a big landlord, not only public housing, but multifamily, maybe we got about 40% of the rental market. Um, some of this, of course, is, uh, you know, it's easy to think about big high rises when you think rental, but half of renters live in units with in properties with under five units. 
most renters live actually in like a third of renters, single family housing, mm-hmm. uh, a surprisingly large number of rental renting households have uh, the rental property has no mortgage on it. And if there's no mortgage, we had no way to offer assistance. So on one hand, I thought we were very effective in the small part of the market in which we had yeah. an influence. Well, I think, yeah, that I was kind of getting at that a little bit, you know, what uh, our group, um, you know, we deal in larger apartment complexes, yeah. A lot of Freddie Fannie stuff. Um, and there wasn't really a whole lot of relief for landlords in those situations, right? It was a forbearance type thing. And then the landlords were kind of like, and the investors were kind of like, you know, out to dry and try to figure out what to do about it. And I'm just curious on the justification on that. It was a very tough situation, you know, and, and I had, uh, you know, only one. So I had a single rental property for much right. of COVID myself and lost a fair amount of COVID rent from one of the tenants who lost their job and they eventually moved out and you know, I ate it. I mean, it, it sucked, but it was, it, it was the situation. And, you know, later Congress of course provided assistance directly to landlords could apply for, but that was pretty late in the game, not till I think 2021. And, and even that it was so bureaucratic. Um, so the truth is, is most landlords ate, ate that. And again, while on the homeowner side, most people who took COVID forbearance, as I talk about in the book, had a lot of equity. We structured the forbearance in a way that they were incentivized to pay it back. But it was very different with tenants. We didn't have a direct relationship with the tenants. We had no way to penalize anybody who took six months and didn't pay their rent and left. And there was a lot of that. So I'd be the first to say, I think this was a situation that was extremely unfair to landlords. That's why we made, unlike the CDC moratorium, what we did, we made voluntary. Uh, but we also had no ability, you know, the most we could do is give the landlord a break um, time-wise on the mortgage because we had no ability to just forgive it. Uh, obviously, if there were going to be landlords who were stressed, we would work with them to try to work out a modification plan. Um, but ultimately, we at FHFA, overseeing Fannie and Freddie, had no way to make the landlords whole. And, and I think that was a real tension and stress point during the crisis. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it, there wasn't really any great, uh, great solutions to, uh, I mean, I a truly unusual situation like that. Um, you know, and I, and I really, you know, I, I guess this way, you know, I worry that particularly 2020, but we've seen this broader trend, you know, in the public of demonizing landlords and, you know, personally, I don't think there's a better, you know, it's a noble thing to provide shelter for somebody else, you know, and, and I think it's a great profession. It's a hard profession. And I don't think policymakers appreciate how difficult it is to be a landlord and you get very little sympathy and, and I wish we could have done more, but we were in our own box, if you will. Well, at least we get the tax benefit. Um, That's that's true. uh, Shift gears a little bit here and talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the, the bank failures and maybe more specifically the, the, the bailouts. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm looking at this from your perspective as, you know, as a libertarian and the outcome of this in the long term and the implications of all of this, frankly, I mean, even going yeah. back to our discussion here of, you know, essentially demonizing owners and yeah. not providing anything, uh, any support for them in the large apartment building space and then going here and, you know, and then the banks have, uh, uh, 
these bailouts that, you know, we've had FDIC protections and all that kind of thing for years and years. And the next thing you know, it's actually challenged and boom, you change the law. So tell me, tell me what's, what do you think of all this? I'm extremely frustrated with the response. And, you know, one of the things you may recall, and I know this will probably a little weeds for, for COVID, but in 2020, there were big calls to assist, have government assist uh, mortgage servicers because of some of the assistance that was provided. And I walk through in the book, you know, what it's like to be in the hot seat of getting 99% of the phone calls you're getting to rescue companies and, and, and bailouts. And of course, there were lots of industries, airlines, others, cruise ships that got bailouts in 2020. So one of the reasons to write the book was I wanted to convey to the to the, to the public, you know, what it's like to be the recipient of all of demands for bailouts. Uh, personally, I don't, I still don't think that while we're still getting information that the Silicon Valley Bank rescue of the depositors was was justified. I don't think it's systemically important. It's not a big bank. Obviously, it's an important bank for Silicon Valley, but you know, the uninsured depositors would have gotten ninety cents on the dollar, which to me. I understand who wants to take a haircut, but, you know, you have to have that market discipline. I thought the initial messaging on the part of the administration was muddled. You know, you didn't know from day to day whose deposits and what banks were covered. So to their credit, the First Republic um, assistance was done better, if not if not perfect or not well, because the cost of it still looks extremely high. Uh, so I do worry that, you know, we have set out a, a, a standard where, you know, if you've got deposits over 250, are they covered by the government or are they not? And those have to depend on what bank they're in. And I very much worry that, you know, people are going to look at this and say, I'm much better off if I've got big deposits having it with Chase or, 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 or you know, Bank of America than I am with a community bank. And the, one of the reasons this concerns me, of course, is, the community banks and the regional banks are incredibly important sources of small business lending. They're important, you know, as you know from being a physician, if you're, you're not going to go to Chase necessarily for your loan to start your, your doctor's office, you're going to go to community regional bank. And they're also important sources of construction lending. So I worry that part of this consolidation that this will drive is going to make it harder to get certain types of lending. So as a policy matter, I worry about uh, what it does to the structure of the banking industry. You know, obviously, I mean, I, I may pre- this is probably a contrarian view, but I think the uninsured depositors pulling their money out of Silicon Valley Bank did us a favor because judging from the reports and the research was done, it would have taken the regulators another six, 12 months to do anything. Uh, and the hole would have been deeper and it would have been worse. So to me, having uninsured depositors force the closure of a bank that the regulators should have been closing already is generally a good thing. And I, and I think we need more market discipline, not less. You know, the Fed and the FDIC have all done kind of action after action reports. And, it, and it's not pretty. I mean, you know, it really is. I guess I'd put it this way for an investor's perspective. If you don't have strong faith in the management of a bank, then you should have nothing to do with that bank because the regulators are not going to address it in a timely basis. So, and, and the reason, I guess I'd almost put it this way, the kind of regulatory failures we saw at Silicon Valley Bank by the Fed are more the norm than they are the exception. And uh, you should never necessarily, I guess, roundabout say a way of saying, uh, don't trust the government to do your due diligence yeah. for you because they're not going to do it well. You know, the, the party line, well, literally the party line, right? Yep. Uh, Yellen, Powell, Biden. 
they they're they're insisting that the banking system is it's sound right um i'm curious on your take on that because uh to me it you know obviously and maybe this is stratified in terms of the community banks and and the big banks and and all that um but is your what's your take well, first, let's let's note what seems to be at a minimum attention, if not a contradiction, which is they tell us on one hand the system is fine and sound, but they also tell us the system can't withstand uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank taking a 10% haircut. So, right. I mean, which right. is it? If the system can't take that, then it's probably not fine and safe. So they need they kind of need to make their choice. Um, personally, I think, you know, the way they look at this is Silicon Valley Bank had about half a dozen serious problems or serious vulnerabilities. Uh, Your typical bank, your typical regional small bank has one or two of those. Like a lot of banks have treasuries and and Fannie and Freddie securities that they haven't fully perfectly hedged against and are going to take losses on. So at this point, I would say I'm expecting four or five more regional banks to get in trouble uh-huh. and to perhaps even fail in, in, in even fact or, or, or at least the reality of it. But that said, I think it's, I think it is concentrated in a handful of banks. This isn't a problem where the entire system, like you think back to the savings and loan crisis in the eighties, you were at points where the, that entire industry was insolvent economically. That's not the case with the banking industry today. You have important, but not systemically overwhelming chunks uh, that are in trouble. And my view is I think you need to deal with those institutions directly. Um, you know, you get, you get this argument from the administration that there's contagion. It's not really contagion. It's the fact that you've got some of these institutions that are functionally insolvent and investors are waking up to it. You also have the situation where, you know, in the year or so leading up to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, there are about $800 billion in deposits taken out of the system. That's not surprising because the banking system during the pandemic grew by $5 trillion in deposits on a base of $13 trillion. And, you know, when people were getting zero for their alternatives, then maybe that was acceptable. But in a world where you can get 4 or 5% on three-month T-bills, are you going to leave that in a deposit? So um, I guess in one way is uh, I expect over the next 12 months to at least another trillion of the positive leave the banking system for no other reason than you've got much better alternatives, whether it's mutual funds or whether it's T-bills directly. Uh, And that's going to put stress on some banks, but it's not going to be enough to sink the system. It will be enough to sink, again, another four or five. Right. And, and that, that also has, you know, I guess confidence implications as well. Right. And, and then we're talking about, um, you know, almost certainly, uh, significantly compromised lending environment for small business and all of this. And so in effect, it, it, there is, there is a little bit of contagion in terms of what the net net result is on the economy, presumably. There's an impact. I mean, I've never been, I mean, I know it's a commonly used term. I feel like contagion just assumes that like, you know, Silicon Valley Bank sneezes and everybody else catches it, where I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I mean, first of all, we're already seeing the regulators clamp down in response. So there's nothing like a bank failure to make the regulators feel embarrassed that they weren't doing their jobs. And of course, their response to being embarrassed about not doing their jobs is to clamp down on lending. 
And you're particularly going to see this. Remember, Signature Bank in New York was one of the more important multifamily commercial real estate lenders there, as well as a little bit in the crypto space. And you're certainly seeing already bank regulators clamp down on commercial real estate. So getting construction lending, getting apartment lending. And you were obviously at a point in the cycle, my view is the apartment sector writ large is already going to be overbuilt. But that said, it's going to get tougher to get construction lending, small business lending, and many institutions because of the regulators, in some sense, overreacting. Um, but all that said, that's one part of it. Certainly, you know, I kind of describe it this way, and I'm, and I'm sure you run into this a lot. Um, as I mentioned, the spreads between alternative investments and deposits have been widening for some time now. And many of us, you know, tell ourselves for sometimes days, weeks, months on end, you know, I'm going to rebalance my portfolio at some point. <laughs> and then, and, you know, you take a while to, to do that. And then all of a sudden there's a shock like this and you're just sort of like, okay, today, today's the day I'm really going to do it. Yeah. And so I think you're certainly going to see a stress, like I mentioned, you're going to see at least a trillion in deposits leave the system. That's going to put stress, particularly on regionals and small banks. Um, you know, some of them are going to do fine, but again, it's going to be tougher to get credit. Uh, certainly it changes the pessimism. You know, people are, you know, despite that we've still continue to have, you know, strong enough job growth. I mean, obviously, I think people are getting much more pessimistic about the economy. And that 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 hits, you know, your willingness to want to invest and start a business and many things. So I do think that these events, you know, are putting a damper and you need to be cautious of numbers that are pre-bank failure. So for instance, a lot of the, you know, real estate, you know, the single family sales numbers from February were strong, but they were before the fail these bank failures. And so are we starting to see that put a drag on the market? So what I would say is you got to pay attention to the next two months worth of data to really figure out, you know, are we going to be lucky and have a soft landing or is this going to be a hard landing? And I think it's just too early to tell. Um, but, you know, it's also a reminder, um, you know, the, some of the best investments are made in the bottom of the market. You know, if, if you're the person sitting there with a, with liquidity and you can be a provider and seller of liquidity in a stress environment, you can do quite well. And, and I, I would argue that's kind of the Warren Buffett model. And that's, you know, he waits around for five years or so for everybody else to mess up and then comes in and, and provides the floor. That's a great investment if, uh, strategy if you've got the patience and liquidity for it. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, one of the things that we're kind of um, watching is the, you know, cer certainly apartment building sector, things are at a snail's pace. I mean, there, there's virtually like zero market, right? Very little liquidity in this market yeah. right now. And a lot of that is because of the lending environment and, um, you know, Freddie, uh, Freddie Fannie uh, kind of debt that we're usually typically looking at in that. Uh, it's, it's dried up pretty well in terms of, yeah. or made the, the requirements, uh are have been very stringent do you what do you think you, you think that's going to loosen up anytime soon or or, or what uh, it, it'll be at least six to 12 months and, and i would say we are in the second or third inning of this game in terms of multifamily correction and, and i hate to put yeah. it this way but it, it's going to get worse before it gets better sure I, and you know we've been building apartments at a higher rate than we have since since like the 80s um, and so tremendous amount of apartment construction, 
a big difference between now and then is a huge amount of it is subsidized. I mean, something like a third to half is typically tax credit properties. And then there's a lot of local subsidies involved. The reason, the importance of that, one, one importance of that is it takes it longer for that ship to turn because once you've gotten all these subsidies and you've gone through all the approval process, you're going to finish that and you're going to open it up regardless of whether it covers its costs or whether, you know, you're going to be able to have the, you know, high level absorption of the properties. So I think we've got a lot of inventory coming online in the apartment market. Um, you know, I would probably be someone who'd want to be a net seller right now, but yeah. you know, in 12 months, it, it, you're going to get to a spot where perhaps it's wise to come back into that market as an investor. Of course, you know, as our realtor friends tell us, location, location, location. So for instance, I mean, New York is a very different market multifamily than say, you know, Sacramento. And, you know, of course we're also in the, bizarre world of the California real estate's taking a beating while Florida real estate's doing well. So, you know, you really have to, I'm not going to quite say that we've abandoned having some sort of national convergence or similarities or, or core aspects to it. But this is one of those things where what's going on out West is very different from what's going on in the Southeast. And so you have to be aware of local market conditions because at the end of the day, I mean, the fundamentals for real estate are demographics and income, you know, is the population growing in that area? And, you know, I think after prices reset, which will be painful for California, you'll start to stabilize. But a lot of people moved out of California during the pandemic. Uh, A lot of people were, you know, stretched in terms of affordability. And until that really resets and until you get a little more construction going there, um, prices just aren't sustainable relative, rents aren't sustainable relative to where incomes are in California. So you're, you're going to continue. We've seen it. We've seen a painful correction there. We're going to continue to see that. But again, I, I would really emphasize for those who really kind of want to be in the real estate game, there are markets of opportunity. You just need to do a lot of research and appreciate that Miami is not, <laughs> you know, it's not sacra, it's not. Los Angeles, and, and there's very big differences. Um, I guess the uh, last topic I want to touch on is uh, inflation. So is the Fed on track to kill inflation? You know, they've. I think they've turned a corner, and it's been painful. Let me be very clear. They 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 were so behind the curve. I mean, I'm of the view that they really should have started, you know, normalizing in the second half of 2020. I mean, what we saw that summer in June, July was just such a dramatic job recovery. So there really wasn't a rationale for the kind of liquidity Fed was pumping in the system later part of 2020. But, you know, we are where we are. I mean, I only raised that to say uh, the best way to deal with these situations is not to get into them to begin with. But again, here we are. So Powell has been very aggressive. I actually talk a little bit about in the book how I was involved in his, his initial selection and some of the pros and cons I saw in that of People want a little bit of Washington insider take in some of the book. Um, You know, we've seen a contraction in the money supply. We're starting to see a contraction in lending, partly because of the regulatory response. So that said, I still think it will be 2025 until we're near the Fed's 2% target. Uh, And so we're going to be, the worst of inflation is behind us, but we've still got some painful inflation ahead of us. Uh, It's just. You think they're going to keep being uh, hawkish? I mean, they actually kind of, took their foot off the pedal in the last 
Yeah, a, a, a little bit. And, you know, first keep in mind, despite what the Fed might want you to believe, they are a deeply political organization. So perhaps a little backwards induction here. The no presidential I mean, election coming up, too. Exactly what I was going to say. Right. So, it, you know, it, it would have to be pretty bad on the current pace we're on. The Fed will not raise rates, nor were they likely lower rates in, next in 2024 because of the presidential election. And in fact, I would go as far to say, you know, come the November, December meetings this year, they're going to be very hesitant to move. So my prediction would be that I think the last window for a rate increase is September is the September meeting. They may not, they may just stand pat then, but I think because, you know, we really need to start to see some changes and the strength of the job market really suggests to me that we've got at least one more rate increase coming. So I don't think we're done. And in fact, again, I think the last increase will be a quarter point in either July or September. And then I think they'll be done until after the election. That's, of course, contingent on things not going sideways in a big way. If we if we are in a deep recession, uh, 2025, 2024, they'll cut rates. But if we're kind of on the slow landing, inflation moderating, jobs moderating, but still positive, then again, July, September is my expectation of last increase. Good stuff. Now, the book, uh, Mark, again, is Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, it's fairly self-explanatory. In the- <laughs> I thought it would be. Um, you know, well, there's, well, the core of it is somewhat self-explanatory because, you know, the, the, the core story is kind of how I, you know, so I should roll it back and say I was on the Senate Banking Committee in 2008, and, and I was of the view that, much of the response to the mortgage crisis in 2008 was poorly handled, <laughs> so to be frank about it. And so part of the narrative of the book is how I looked at how poorly handled things were in 2008. And then as fate would have it, I happened to be the person in that seat in 2020. And I talk about in the book why we did it differently than 2008. You know, and I walk through kind of decisions, the trade-offs, the uncertainties, you know, and why I think it turned out much better. Uh, now, there are other aspects of it. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the rental issues. You know, one aspect that I thought was incredibly important when we were setting up forbearance programs was we wanted to make sure they didn't punish people to go back to work. And so one of the problems in 2008 was you would lose a lot of your mortgage forbearance if you started working. And so we wanted to make sure we had a program that didn't punish work. And that's talked about in the book. Um, there's some, again, I mentioned, you know, why we said no to, to bailouts and some of the mortgage industry and kind of the, the ins and outs on that. I give some leadership lessons, you know, on terms of coming into a very troubled agency and give a background on that, how we kind of turn that around. And of course, a few insider stories here and there. So for those who are just kind of interested in what it's like to try to guide an agency in a mortgage market through a crisis, you know, I just wanted to put that out there and, and let people know why we made certain decisions in some way. So I think it's a fun read, little stories yeah. and anecdotes here and there, as well as probably more than you ever wanted to know about the mortgage market. <laughs> Great. Mark, thanks so much for being on Well Formula Podcast. Uh, Buck, it's been a pleasure. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. It is interesting to me how a you know a big government uh, intervention like that happened and, you know, Guys who are even libertarians, uh, like uh, like our guest, were essentially 
you know, seeing that we had to intervene in a big way. But um, anyway, the rest is history right now, right? So anyway, grab his book. It might be uh, an interesting read to, to, to figure out how all those decisions were made. Uh, before I go, I want to remind you again, I have a new podcast and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's called Sapio, S-A-P-I-O with Buck Joffrey. And it is going to be about all sorts of interesting things with a big focus on longevity medicine uh, and, and other health uh, related stuff. Check that out. Um, make sure you download it, subscribe, give me a review if you like it, because I, uh, you know, it's hard to start a new podcast. Anyway, I appreciate your support. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.